Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Interstate Batteries is a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation. So if you're looking for high-quality batteries, you need to check out a local Interstate Batteries retail store, or you can visit them online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet chasing bear. I usually begin the podcast when I introduce someone, I say, this is my friend, whoever it is. Well, I want to say that about this guest, and I and I, I really mean it. But I have not known this guy for very long. But as soon as I met him, I was like, this is a good guy, and he's going to be my friend. And so on this podcast with my friend, Jonathan Wilkins, you're going to hear a very interesting conversation. Jonathan was raised in an urban area and became a hunter later in life when he moved to Arkansas. He had a, a, a non-traditional entry into the hunting space. We have a very candid conversation about all his early experiences hunting, about race, about a bunch of great stuff. And, and you're going to enjoy this podcast with my friend, Jonathan Wilkins of Black Duck Revival. Secondly, it's not too late to check out Northwood's bear products. There's still quite a bit of bear baiting going on, and Northwood's bear products has a full line of products. You guys hear me preach about it about every other podcast. 
but we have been going through the gold rush like crazy. As I record the intro to this podcast, we just got done bear hunting. I mean, I've still, my skin and knives are still stained with the evidence of a bear kill from yesterday that was taken because of Northwoods Bear Products since. So check out our friends on Instagram, Facebook, and their website, Northwoods Bear Products. These guys just aren't making bear products, but these guys are bear hunters and are doing good things for the sport of bear hunting. Check them out. So I am here in Northwest Arkansas with my new buddy, Jonathan Wilkins. Jonathan and I are tired. We're tired, aren't we, Jonathan? I'm a little worn down here. <laughs> We've been at the World Championship Squirrel Cookoff all day long, and you were a you were a contestant. You you were you were cooking for the for the gold medal. I was cooking. I did not get a gold medal, but yeah, I, uh, I gave it a shot. Gave it a shot. Well, we're doing a whole other podcast about the World Championship Squirrel Cookoff, but. So tell us what, tell me what you cooked. So I did a kind of a riff on a uh, a classic kind of British bar food called chips and curry. So normally that's just like a very simple curry sauce on top of, you know, French fries. What is curry sauce actually? I mean, I know what it is. I eat it and like it, but I, I honestly don't know what it is. It's like. Okay, curry, I think, I think curry actually translates to sauce. And there's a million different varieties of it. It's regional specialties. But just to simplify it, it's it's a sauce that can incorporate any number of things. Primarily, people think of it as that that yellow color, which is turmeric-based. But, you know, coming out of Southeast Asia, out of India and Pakistan. Yeah. uh, And, you know, tradition. I mean, you could pair it with meat. Depending on if a person's a, you know, a what religion they practice or whatever, they might pair it with goat. They might pair it with lentils and do a vegetarian thing. There's a million, there's a million different iterations of it. So I didn't mean to interrupt you there. So you made, Oh, so I did a uh, curry over. Yeah. I did a squirrel curry. Uh, it had like cardamom water, uh, you know, cilantro, fresh ginger, onions, garlic, uh, a bunch of gray squirrel in it. Uh, you know, just a, a curry that I like. Some raisins. You put some raisins in your curry. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, especially like in the Middle East, uh, you know, up to like, you know, Morocco and stuff like that, they do a lot of pairing of sweet and savory. Like in Morocco, there's a very mm. classic uh, pigeon stuffed with raisin and dates dish. Uh, it complements well, especially when you get that dried fruit, that kind of intensified, rich, uh, molasses-y kind of flavor. It it can go well in strong spicy well, If you'd dishes. saved me any, I would be able to comment now and talk about how good it was. Man, it went quick. Uh, <laughs> but like I said, man, if we can get you down to duck hunt, man, I'll make you some more. So the the World Championship Squirrel Cook-Off is in Bentonville, Arkansas. And so you, you cooked like six plates for judges. Is that right? Yeah, so, so you did six servings of that. And you got to give that to judges. And then the rest... You don't have to, but pretty much it's like the thing to do is you serve that to the general public that comes to this big mm-hmm. event. And so you had now chips. When you say chips, French that, fries. Yeah, that's just French fries. I fried so them. So you in. poured this like it, it kind of looked like chili to me. I mean, almost yeah, sure. like yeah, it's sure. kind of this like dark reddish, mm-hmm. you know, like sauce. And you put that over the French fries. Yeah, I fried the. I did the French fries in rendered duck fat. 
Rendered, like 100% rendered duck fat? Yep. Mm-hmm. No way. Yep. And then uh, and then I steeped squirrel in duck fat, and then I strained it, and then I used that to make a vinaigrette, and then I just dressed a, like a cucumber and tomato salad. Because that curry was pretty spicy. You get that cucumber, it kind of cools it down a little bit, and I served that on the side. Right on. Well, it's it smelled awesome. Cool. I appreciate it, man. It smelled good. But uh, so – little introduction of who you are and and i've 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 we kind of i've known about you for a little while but uh but you have well you you introduce yourself so uh i've been in arkansas for half my life i moved down here to go to college i'm originally from st louis um just through happenstance and whatnot uh i ended up meeting a guy who taught me how to bow hunt that kind of transformed my life about 10 years ago. I came to it later in life as an adult. And, uh, you know, there's a million things that have happened, but now I've got a, a, a small business running uh, a, little, a little duck lodge in the Arkansas Delta. And, you know, just trying to find my feet in, uh, I guess, the outdoor industry, I guess is what you would call it. But just kind of trying to find my way and find my little niche and, how I can do the stuff that brings me a lot of joy and satisfaction and still take care of my family. Yeah. So you started hunting about 10 years ago. Yeah, I think I killed I, – I was real lucky, and I had a lot of success uh, from the beginning. I was living on my – at the time, my girlfriend's family property. We were just living in a little trailer on 15 acres. And I bought a bow, just a compound, and, uh, you know, a compound is not a difficult thing to use. I, I feel like – just basic proficiency is fairly easy to attain. Right. And I killed uh, I killed a pretty good buck two weeks later. Really? After getting your bow? Just right after getting Man, your bow? Man, I mean, that, and that's what I'm saying. I'm not, a, I'm not an awesome bow shot. Uh, I couldn't – I probably couldn't hit a pie plate at 40 yards. But inside of 20 yards or 25, 30 yards, like I could hit a doorknob all day long. I think a lot of people could. And – I was doing that within the first couple hours. I practiced for a week. My buddy was like, I think we can take you hunting. Did you? Okay. You just you just stepped over a very good line. D- d- you know, Renella gave me a hard time about saying that uh, somebody couldn't shoot a bow within a couple of hours. You may not. So on the Meteor podcast, when I was on there, I said, oh, yeah, I said, I somebody, I said somebody could learn to shoot a bow in like three hours and be pretty proficient. And they, 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 he was like, they were like, no, no, they couldn't. No, they couldn't. I've had so many people say, Clay, we agree with you. So do you agree with me that you can get pretty proficient with a bow within a couple hours? Yeah, I think, I think it probably has a lot to do with where you're hunting. I think Renella does that Western hunting when he's got longer shots. But, I mean, we live in Arkansas. I hunt that Eastern deciduous forest. Yeah, we forest. got 20, 20 yard shots most of the time. Yeah, I didn't. The first deer I killed, he was about 12 yards. Then later that season, I killed one at about nine yards. I killed another one with a bow the next year at five yards. It was three years before I ever shot my bow further than 15 yards in a hunting scenario. Yeah. I would say that's real congruent with my experience bow hunting. I mean, not a lot of deer I've killed over 30 yards. I mean, Mm -hmm. some I have, but it's, but you know, that's 25 years of bow hunting and bow hunting a lot, but. Typically twenty yards inside of twenty yards for yeah. Arkansas for our Arkansas stuff. What? Let me ask you a question. What? What drew you to hunting? So I mean, you were raised in an urban environment. 
Yeah, like very, totally urban. Very much so. You told yeah. me you had dreadlocks when you came to Arkansas. Yeah, I had big. I not had, that, not I, that that makes someone urban. Okay, yeah, let me yeah, just sure. say that. But no, I had a. You 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 said that to me to like be like yeah I was I I was in a different I was in a different sphere. Yeah, I had I had little dreadlocks when I moved to Arkansas, <laughs> uh, and I grew them for a long time and with like some big gnarly Rasta looking ones. But uh, I'll tell you what I'll tell you what I think it really came came down to. Uh, when I grew up, my dad, my dad raised me reading Louis L'Amour books and watching Westerns mm. and, you know, Jeremiah Johnson and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there was a book I loved when I was a kid called My Side of the Mountain about this kid from New York who ends up in the Smoky Mountains and hollows out a tree and trains a hawk and all this stuff. Uh, Dang, that sounds like a good book. It's a great book. And it was <laughs> they even made it into a movie in the 70s and we watched it like on Friday movie night with my family. But... Mm -hmm. There was, I feel like when I was introduced to hunting and I had access to it, it, it just made sense. It was something that I was missing. And the reason I reference those like Westerns and the Louis L'Amour books and stuff is because there was something that I was responding to in those, but I didn't know how it was going to manifest. I see. And I think that what I'm, I think that what I really respond to with it, I mean, it's very multifaceted, but I kind of boil it down to it's very much uh, representative of the American dream to me because it's the way that I approach it, it's about self-sufficiency. Mm. Uh, you know, when you go and hunt what I would quantify as fair chase and you go and you, you know, match wits with an animal and you treat it with respect and you you respect it enough to learn a whole bunch about it so that you can try and put yourself in a scenario. And then if you are able to be successful at that, that's you. You earned it. It's, it's like picking up a heavy weight. You can either do it or you can't do it. Uh, and I respond a lot to that. I feel a real sense of accomplishment with it. It also, I feel like when I'm in, when I, when I was in the National Forest a couple of weeks ago, and it was a chunk of woods I'd never been in before, but it felt very familiar and appropriate for me to be there. I don't think I'd feel that way in a desert. I don't feel that way on the ocean, mm. but I don't even really feel that way on big lakes. But mm. bayous, swampy stuff, you know, the mountains we have here in Arkansas, that's, yeah. those are places that feel like I have some kind of connection that to it that's bigger than I can uh, I can quantify. What What were the challenges of coming into hunting without a lot of? Now it sounds like you had some you had some place in your in your upbringing in the input that you had uh, parental input even even your dad have an interest in like now Lou Lamore that's not necessarily hunting stuff but it's it's West, I, I don't know that much about it, but Western stuff, like connection to the land, yeah. kind of like this, uh, well, Western cowboy stuff. Mm -hmm. But then like Jeremiah Johnson would have been like pioneer stuff, hunting stuff. I mean, like, so you, I guess you did have a place inside of your mind where it was like, this could fit. But uh, so what were the, what were the challenges of coming, being a new hunter? I mean, I'd say just to reference what you just spoke to. Like, I was raised to be capable. Like, okay. I was raised, like, my dad was 40 years old when I was born. I'm his first kid. And I, I say that because my dad's older, and 
he just has a different mindset. So I was raised to fix things first, if you could. Like, you don't call somebody in to fix your washing machine if you can fix it. Okay. Like, you work on your own car. When I was nine years old, my dad had me up on the roof helping him shingle it. Yeah. You know, so I'm just saying there. I think that helped play into it because— Now, did that play into, like, the like the food aspect of it? Like, like— I, th- I, I want to go get food for myself, just like, you know, you fix your car for yourself. I think, yes, partly, but I think, I think I'd speak more to the fact that it gave me enough confidence in myself that I felt like I could do things that were physically difficult if I tried, you okay. know, uh, yeah. that there wasn't something I couldn't do if I didn't keep working at it Okay, kind of deal. Uh, and then I did have... Actually, I'm, I lost the point. So, what were you asking? Challenges to hunting. Okay. Challenges to become like so. You're like mid 30s now. So mm-hmm. you start hunting 10 years ago. So yeah. you're in your mid 20s. So you didn't grow up doing it, but kind of had this space in your, you know, you had this pocket of interest and curiosity and desire that was that found traction when some you met somebody here in Arkansas mm-hmm. that taught you how to bow hunt. Sure. Did you? Well, I'm jumping ahead of myself. But maybe this is bef- maybe this is jumping backwards. Did you pursue that guy, or did he pursue you? The, no, he's, the mentor. No, he's a. I mean, he's a, one of my best friends. Uh, we were actually we were working together. We had a little business building decks and running fence and just odd jobs. And when he we were building the deck out uh, at my mother in law's trailer, and he was just looking at the woods around there. He was like, "Man, I've never seen." this many huge white oaks it's mm. just nothing and that 15 acres backed up to a thousand acres of just beautiful hardwood forest and he was just losing his mind about it and so it was really a thing where i was just kind of tagging along because he wanted to go see if he could what's up with this draw over here man look at all this green briar that's bit off here uh so he was, started checking out these woods like yeah. from a hunter's perspective he was he was noticing stuff that a hunter would notice that yeah, Somebody else that I I had no, I mean, and you got to understand, like, I I had probably seen two deer from a distance in my life at this point. Mm. Like, I just, I didn't have any association with them. Uh, but he was passionate about it, and it, you know, it piqued my interest. And I remember, I remember us walking around this little five-acre chunk, and he was explaining to me, like, what a be- deer bed looked like. And so I've just, every de- depression I'd find, it's like, you think there's a deer living here? You think there's a deer living here? <laughs> and I remember him being like, dude, you're looking at this too small. Because to me at the time, five acres was an enormous chunk of property. Okay. And I, okay. Thought, I thought there was maybe three or four deer that lived on that five acres, like, all the time. Okay. I had no idea. Huh. Uh, but so, yeah, but I went, I just ended up going down the rabbit hole with it, and I went hard. Hmm. Uh, and, yeah, so he probably... We probably went squirrel hunting in September of that first year. And then November 7th of 2010, I, I killed my first deer, though. And I killed it with a bow. Two weeks after getting a bow. Yeah. Like wow. I said, and it, and I understand how lucky I was, but I do take a little bit of pride because I caught on fairly quickly. And where I killed that deer, you know, my buddy had showed had shown me... <clears throat> 
excuse me. He showed me like what a I didn't know what a draw was. I didn't know what a saddle was. Right. And so I just walked around until I found this spot where there was three draws running together. And I ended so up, you found the spot on your own. I found it on my own, and I grunted that deer in. Dang. And he came in, and it was like TV. He put on a show. He beat up a tree. He peed all down the back of his legs and stomped around. And then I just thumped him at uh, 12 yards. Right on. And then I called my buddy from the deer stand, shaking, and said, I just killed a deer. I just called a, <laughs> killed, killed a TV deer. I killed one of those deer on TV. Uh, so Man, that's cool. That's a... That's a good first experience. It's an awesome one. Yeah, it was a If I had if it had taken me 6 years to kill a deer, I'm sure that at some point I would have said this is it's not working out. But because I kind of saw what it could be very early, it just fueled my desire to go further and further into it. And and I'm a I'm definitely definitely not I'm not hunting for antlers. I really I don't have that much interest in killing rutting bucks anymore because they can get a little funky tasting and I'm looking I'm looking to put four or five deer in the freezer, but uh I it just it opened me to be able or it gave me the opportunity to be able to open myself to all the other stuff that comes with hunting. Yeah. So it sounds to me like you're you found a good you found a good mentor but your passion really helped you overcome a lot of the obstacles of knowledge and stuff just because it sounds like you just started sucking up information, yep. sucking up knowledge, and just were able to just kind of a self-starter in a sense, even though you had somebody. I mean, we all had somebody helping us do stuff. Sure, you know? Yeah, but I mean, I was, I was actively reading every book I could find, even old ones I'd find in antique stores. Uh, I was looking for stuff on the Internet. I was, I mean, this was before you kind of had that YouTube, right? The, the YouTube hunting resurgence, or not resurgence, but just what's happening now. It wasn't what it is today. Yeah, I mean, I would go, I would go to Walmart three times a week starting in September waiting for those, uh, those, uh, white-tailed, uh, hunting DVDs to come out. Yeah. You know, because I was like, just anything I could find. You know find. what? I actually missed that. I, I did the same it was exciting. thing for years. Yeah. For years, I bought DVDs, and they would come out around first week of September, mm -hmm. second week of September at Walmart. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, man, I would go buy one of those, and I would be, like, giddy. And I would go home, and I would put it in the – I mean, yeah. in the DVD – we don't even own a DVD player anymore. Put it in the DVD player and watch it. It's like the way it's those, like the way records used to be. Those yeah. days are gone. Yeah, it's, it's all very immediate. And I – and even though I've only been doing it for ten years, I do feel like I Those got were the good old days. I got in it early enough to understand references from people who have been doing it for thirty or forty years. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, that's that's cool. So okay, so we we've got you into hunting now, and um, now I know that you're you're a big duck hunter. Mm -hmm. Is is that? Let's see, you, you went to college at Hendricks, which is a, a college here in central, central Arkansas. Yep. And when did you start duck hunting? The year after I started deer hunting. Okay, so, so after that. Yeah, the way that went down is, so, like, I don't look like the prototypical Arkansas hunter. You know, like, I'm a person of color. I got a bunch of weird tattoos on me. And 
Those are pretty good looking tattoos. I'm looking at a. Let me see that. I'm looking at a. Uh, is that a mallard duck? Yeah, I got mallards. I got my mallard mom. and a hen. You got a picture of mom. I got a '95 Dodge Caravan. <laughs> I got a Pekingese with a uh, are you, handlebar. Are you going to tell me the story of the '95 Dodge Caravan tattoo? Man, I played music for a long time, and that was my old tour van. <laughs> so we used to say, man, you got to get in the van and ride or die. So I put it on my arm with ride or die underneath it. Are you going to get a squirrel, like world championship squirrel contestant cook-off tattoo? No. You know, you I going to hold off on that? Well, how about if you ever bring home the W, you do that? I w- no more tattoos. No, I'll probably get more tattoos. I'm probably not going to memorialize one of a the guys competition. not to not to sidetrack too far but pretty far one of the guys today that I talked to at the squirrel cook off he uh, asked him what he was going to do if he won and he said get a new tattoo really he was going to put a world champion and he got third place oh okay it was the guy that got third place so i don't know if he's going to get a new tattoo or not for I'd, third I'd place i'd at least wait till the the top uh but no i mean i've duck actually duck hunting duck hunting yeah, so yeah. we're talking about duck hunting but no so so the way that duck hunting thing started is, and the reason I bring up the fact that I don't look like a prototypical hunter is because sometimes that's a disadvantage, but sometimes it's been an advantage in the fact that it piques people's interest. And so there was this guy that uh, used to come and watch my band play, and he was just fascinated with the fact that I was into bow hunting. He's like, mm. man, you ought to come out here and try duck hunting. And so... He took me out, and we just hunted like a little weed field uh, down by Lone Oak and shot shovelers. I mean, and I was on it. I mean, the first time it happened, I was on it. Ate up with it. Not good at it, but just, I just, it was just an amazing thing to watch. Those whistling wings, convincing those ducks from way up in the air to come down and land right in front of you. I was just on it. Mm. And then it's just been... And then he doesn't even live here anymore, and so then it was a lot of just me struggling, finding very marginal places to walk into and just using crummy You learned gear. how to duck call. Yeah, took a long time to learn how to blow a call because th- th- that's another thing. I didn't have anyone to show me that stuff. Uh, so it was just constant trial and error, and I was very bad for several, more than several years. And for a long time, most of the ducks I killed didn't get called to. I just have some decoys out there and try and hide, and sometimes they'd come in. A lot of times, it's that first thirty minutes, uh, which they say everyone's a duck killer the first thirty minutes because the light's bad; they can't see that good. Yeah. Uh, but just slowly learning more, asking. I ask people. How that do you know feel like me. you are as a as a caller today? I mean, just honestly, are you a good caller, proficient caller, not average, or really good? I think that. I think honestly, in the last six months, I've. I probably moved a little past proficiency into pretty decent. Okay. Like I blow a, uh, I blow a old fifties cut down Olt, which uh, anyone who blows a duck call that's that's about as hard a call to blow as you can get. It takes a tremendous amount of air and pressure. And like when I first started blowing that, it would make me lightheaded and I'd see stars. Hmm. Like it, it's hmm. just a lot of it's physical exertion. And then once you figure it out. It's like anything else, you know. You can have a little more finesse on it and be a little more dexterous, but but that was that was an example there of I just kept trying something that was really hard to do and just kept being bad at it until one day I wasn't. And I was running around. I told my, I told my wife, "Can you? Just, I just uh, I just 
I just did a rolling feed on this thing. Can you believe it? <laughs> she doesn't care, you know, but she knew that it was important to me because I probably had, I bet you I had 300 hours blowing that thing in my truck until I could get it to do Now, is the old call, is it a better, is there an advantage to being able to blow that call if it's harder? I know in most animal calling, usually if there's a harder method, a lot of times it's better in some ways. I mean, like a turkey diaphragm call, like, yeah, you yeah. could use a box call or you could use a little push call, but if you can call with a diaphragm, which is much harder, mm-hmm. you, you're you a better caller. I mean, you can make, make better noises with it, you know. It's Okay, so uh, an old cut, a cut-down call is, it's a, it's a call that's been modified. The tone board has been usually filed with, like, a bastard file or, a uh, like, sandpaper. Basically, and it's something that developed very much here in Arkansas. And the reason is, is because Arkansas is known for hunting timber. California, Virginia, a lot of places, they hunt these open marshlands. Sound travels much better. I'm trying to hunt in flooded timber. There's treetops, early season, there's leaves. An old, an old cut-down old will get incredibly loud, mm. and it'll cut through that. Okay. That's the advantage of it. And especially on public land, when you're competing with a bunch of other people calling, if you can call louder, I mean, because you got to think about this. A duck, if you drive down the road at 60 miles an hour and you stick your head out the window, that's what a duck hears all the time. So you're just trying to get them to hear a little bit of it a lot of times, just a cluck or a little bit of that quack to turn their head to pay attention to your decoys. I see. And then try and start convincing them to work down in there. So that's mm. that's the advantage so of the, the old. loudness of it. It's the yeah. loudness. Well, that makes sense. Also the rasp. Uh, a cut down call is it's just like people's voices. Uh, it's a really raspy kind of rattly call. It has a lot of bottom end. You'll hear people talk about that. They're talking about kind of the low tone of it, the bass, and that deep bass sound travels through the air much better than a high sound. So like, and a perfect example of that is elephants. You know, elephants will do this very low, very low kind of subsonic rumbling, and it can be heard for miles and miles for by other elephants. Hmm. And it's because that low tone will just cut through the air better. Hmm. That's interesting. So tell me about tell me about your your duck club or, or your 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 Yeah. Your lodge. Yeah. So that started with I was driving around you know, it was an hour and a half drive from my house, and I was driving it sometimes seven days in a row and then turning around and driving back, getting up at 2 in the morning. The Arkansas Delta is a very economically depressed place. The industry's gone. Farming has changed. You know, a 200-acre farm that used to take 12 guys to work takes one guy in a combine now. Mm-hmm. So it's very economically depressed, and that means that just real estate prices – aren't what they would be otherwise. So I was trying to find just a little rat's nest that I could get for cheap that I could stay in and not have to travel so much. And what I ended up buying was an old church. And I thought I was just going to do, excuse me, I thought I was going to do like a superficial revamp on it, but that was because I didn't know what I was doing. And it was a complete gut job. Like I had to take every floor joist out. Like basically the only things original are the exterior walls. Hmm. And that, I was having to justify the expenditure because I got to a point where I was like, I've either got to just lose this money 
and move on or I've got to try and make this something. And I decided to try to make it something. And so I built it into something that I would want to go to, a place that would be really utilitarian but comfortable and you know, hopefully attractive. Uh, had a place to put your boat. You could have your dogs there. They had kennels. They had mud rooms. Just everything you would want. And if no one's there, I hunt out of it. But then I rent it out to other DIY hunters who want to come. It's a really great place for like four or five or six buddies to get there. Mm. And you don't have to stay in a little hotel room. But you also don't have to pay $500 a night to stay at a really fancy duck lodge. You can, uh, you can come there. You can bring your wives, your kids. I got a lot of people that do that. They hunt for the weekend or for the week. There's White River, Cash River, tons of WMAs, Bayou to View, Road Bayou, Stuttgart's 40, 35 minutes away. It's in the heart of the the premier green timber duck hunting on the planet. And so, yeah, it just kind of developed into that. And uh, then I ended up buying... The house next to it was an old fur uh, trapper and fur buyer's house. And I ended up buying that, and I just finished the revamp on that and started renting it out for this season. And so I kind of ended up with this corner in the middle of town, in the middle of... Brinkley. Yeah, some of the best duck hunting in the world. Right on, man. Tell me the name of it. I know it. I want you to say it. So it's called Black Duck Revival. Black Duck Revival. Yeah. And yesterday, I tried to guess why you called it Black Duck, and I struck out on the first guess. So this name has some significance. So tell me about Black Duck Revival. So obviously this was like this was an old country Delta church, very traditional. Uh, goes along with that that idea of having revivals. So there's a reference to that. The Black Duck is a reference in the Mississippi Flyway. The, a Black Duck is a very prized uh, duck. It'd be like killing a Black Duck would be like killing a 200 inch whitetail. See, and that's where I was confused. Because I thought a black duck was a trash duck, yeah, well, a you, diver duck. Yeah, you were you were thinking about a black duck actually being black colored, which is not the case. A black duck looks like a slightly darker hen. Mallard. But do they not call them black ducks? I mean, I've duck hunted a little, and I I've, I remember seeing ducks flying over big, kind of long neck ducks, kind of thick. They didn't flap their wings quite as fast, and I and I you know I'd be like, hey, there's some ducks, and they'd be like, those are black ducks. I mean, those could be... It, it was like coots or something. Yeah, I mean, coots, mergansers, scops. But they weren't interested in them. But yeah. you're telling me that a black duck is, is like something special. Oh, yeah. In the Mississippi Flyway? Okay. Absolutely. It, that's an Atlantic Flyway bird. It'd be okay. like... It'd be like... So they're just not supposed to be here. They will be here. Now, they will interbreed with mallards, and sometimes they'll get... They'll just be one that's lost, and he's with mallards. But it'd almost be like... Uh, if you were hunting up in the Ozarks and you saw a pronghorn or something. Is that right? Like, I know guys that have duck hunted for 40 years, and they've never killed a black duck. Well, I, like the, I like the branding and imagery of that. I'm trying, so, man. So, revival because of this refurbished church. Yeah. Uh, tell me the, a little bit of the history about that church. You told me yesterday something that was kind of cool. Well, you you just said you said that this church just hung on. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it kind of, to me, when you told that, it was reflective of, of what I've seen and what I know and what you just said about the, the Delta. I mean, the Delta is one of the most probably economically depressed places in the country. Am I am I right in saying oh, there's the Arkansas Delta, and it would probably be in the Mississippi Delta and stuff. I mean, these are some of the most, 
I mean, uh, to be honest, the poorest places in America. They, they truly are. There's people. There's people in the Delta areas of Arkansas and Mississippi that legitimately might not have uh, might not have floors in their house. I mean, yeah. it's incredible. And I'm not saying that's everybody, but it's just an. Inc- there's no industry. There's no jobs there. I mean, you might have a fast food restaurant and an ag store and a dollar store, but there's yeah. just nothing left. I think Brinkley graduates like 25 kids a year now. Wow. Uh, See, this was all, this is all like, so people hear me talking about the mountains of Arkansas, mm-hmm. obviously. So Arkansas, if, if Arkansas were a square, which it's not really a square, and if, if, and if there was a line drawn from the northeast corner of that square to the southwest corner of that square, mm-hmm. The northwest half, you know, the upper left half yeah. of that triangle would be kind of the mountainous regions sure. of Arkansas, the Washtals and Ozarks. We didn't have any agriculture to speak of. I mean, it was mm-hmm. all just forested, rough ground land. Sat the the other triangle, half of that square, would have been Mississippi Delta swampland mm-hmm. stuff that was clear timber was cleared and they made ag fields out of it yep so i mean like massively agricultural area change completely changed the landscape over 150 years yeah Uh, i mean this was these were like the big woods is what they called the stuff around brinkley and these are enormous cypress swamps tupelo swamps you know there's hardwood bottoms in there uh and part of the reason it's great for agriculture is because you had this system of thousands and thousands of years of decaying vegetative matter building up this really rich soil. Uh, you also had a substrate under that that was largely clay, so it held water. Mm. Which is So the thing that made it a great swamp once it was cleared is the thing that turned it into a great place to uh, grow rice. Ah, see, I, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. You know, you're putting that water on the fields and it's holding it. Yeah, because rice has that. They have to flood these fields. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you know, in in college, I learned about the Grand Grand Prairie Aquifer. Yeah. So the Grand Prairie Aquifer, if you look at these underground water maps, yeah, of hydraulic maps, they have them everywhere, I assume, but the ones in Arkansas, one of the largest underwater aquifers, I'm just going to say, in the southern United States, mm-hmm. and it could have even been in North America, was the Grand Prairie Aquifer, which is right in the delta of Arkansas. And so for 150 years, they farmers were able to flood rice fields by just drilling down 100 feet. Put a well in, yeah. Put a well in, drill down 100 feet, and they have unlimited water pumping out at 100 gallons a minute or Mm -hmm. something. And anyway, you know, 15 years ago when I was in college, there was uh, they were talking about the depletion of the Grand Prairie Aquifer, which uh, which I assume is still happening even more because that was 15 years ago but and they they, they've had to mitigate anyway it's it's caused some issues because they got to drill down way deeper than they used to to get this water yeah but anyway that's a whole other story but you just taught me something about the swamps yeah i mean that's why that's why it works and you know and that leads to stuttgart getting planted in rice in 1901 when it started and that that goes to migration patterns for ducks changing and then this whole culture of this whole culture of hunting ducks in flooded rice in Arkansas has. Hold that exact thought mm-hmm. about the flyway patterns. And I want to go back. I, I jumped ahead of you, and I, I do this all the time. Black Duck Revival. Yeah. So the revival I got with the church, 
Black duck. Why the black duck? Well, like I said, because it's it's just like it's just something special it's, it's, and unique. Yeah, it's the the special, unique kind of like the holy grail of duck hunting. And then and then also it's tongue in cheek, you know, like I'm a black guy, and uh, I wanted to focus <laughs> on part of part of my business model is trying to expose non traditional hunters to hunting because there's a lot. Mm. You asked me earlier what were some of the difficulties in it, and Honestly, the biggest difficulty in it for me learning was that it was something that society did not show that it, it did not. Uh, there wasn't a lot of documentation of people who looked like me doing it. And it, it makes you feel like it's not a place for you. Uh, you, you know, people lead they they lead lives that are oftentimes based on the examples of others. Um, and it, it helps examples of others that, that are look doing like that. Yeah. That are doing or that they can identify with on some level, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, I mean, that could, you could say that about, you know, African-Americans and hunting, you could say about women and hunting, I mean, anything. Uh, but, but like kind of what we talked about yesterday is, you know, African-Americans until the great migrations that occurred, like, you know, at the turn of the century, when, droves of black people went from the rural parts of the south to places like St. Louis and Indianapolis and Chicago and up to, you know, Boston and Baltimore and stuff like that because it was just a it was a crippling hostile environment so they moved places where they weren't under threat of as much physical danger and places where it was easier to make a life. And what happened when when that happened one of the results was that you took a population of people that was almost entirely rural and you made them almost entirely urban. Mm. And then four or five generations later, you had this narrative that black people don't hunt, you know, like Mm. maybe some black people fish, but black people don't really hunt. And that's not the, that's not the case. It's Mm. actually much more complicated than that. Uh, I've looked into some of the, uh, the numbers of like how many licenses in Arkansas, they, they track the race of people buying hunting and fishing licenses. Really? Is that information that's accessible? Yeah, you could. I mean, if you, uh, you might have to FOIA it, but yeah, it's totally available. Really? Uh, do you know those numbers? I don't know them off the top of my head. I do know, I mean, I haven't looked at it in a couple of years. It's a lot more people than you would think. And what I found out just, this is anecdotal, but what I found out is that there's lots of black folks, I'm talking specifically about African Americans, there's lots of black folks in Arkansas that hunt. But there is still, frankly, there's a fear amongst a lot of African-Americans about being in the woods, you know, with, uh, with folks they might feel are, you know, ill-intended or hostile towards them. So I think a lot of black folks Do you hunt. think that's still, like even here in Arkansas, like, like uh, now I can see some like an urban, somebody in an urban place that wasn't mm-hmm. familiar with, Ar- with with anywhere like having that. I've actually encountered one of my friends that was from Chicago. Yeah. He lived in Arkansas for a while. He was terrified to drive after dark to my house. Oh, yeah. I mean And that well, was bizarre to me. I was very afraid when I moved down here. Really? I was I was very afraid. Th- was that taught to you? Uh I mean and when I say taught, I mean like like is that like something in the culture? I think it's I think it's partly gonna be just something that's like out there in the zeitgeist. You know, seeing stuff on TV or TV or whatever, but I mean, it does. It comes from experiences. Like, and I'll give you a very, 
I'll give you a very pointed one. I'd say that the vast, vast, vast majority of my outdoor experiences have been very positive. But I can tell you that the, the few times that I've, after the, initial, after the initial time or two of me going out duck hunting, the few times that I've taken, in a, taken up someone on an invitation to go duck hunting, I've heard like a vitriolic racial slur while duck hunting. For real. Oh, I mean, yeah, they dropped the N-word on you. No way. And I remember one time, you know, because I'm not like. Like I, guys that are like, like really being, well, obviously if they're saying that, they're being ugly. Yeah, but I no. mean, or do, or do they think it's like playful or something? I think, like, I remember specifically one time there were guys already in the hole, me and a dude, a buddy of mine, we got there late and someone came and picked us up in the boat of the ramp and we went out there. It was like 20 degrees. It was freezing. So I had a face mask on and I'm not incredibly dark complected. It was still dark. And, uh, yeah, old fella just, he didn't know I was a black guy, so he just started throwing it around, okay. just talking, you know. Okay. Or I'm sitting in a blind with a guy, and he starts dropping it. And what, it, what I realized was that I don't, think they were, I don't think they were like, I want to hurt or offend this guy. I think that they just say it so much it didn't even occur to them that mm. they, it would be offensive to somebody. But I don't want, I mean, I don't want to harp on that too much, but... I mean, truthfully, there is. Well, there, there's truth to what you're saying is that there's there's reason for that. I, yeah, there's reason to be unnerved, maybe. And and you got to think too in Arkansas, uh, like I'm the only one at boat ramps. I've never seen any. You've never seen another black guy. At a boat I've never ramp. seen anyone darker than khaki at a boat ramp <laughs> ever. You know, uh, I've. The only time I've even seen black people hunting is black guys in the Delta running dogs because there's okay. a very strong history of houndsmanship among African Americans, and that's traced all the way back to slavery. Right. Uh, right. But yeah, I mean, duck hunting, there's, it's few and far between. There's a lot of black deer hunters, there's a lot of black fishermen, there's a lot of black small game hunters. But the point that I was making is that I think it's a, it's a comfort thing with a lot of folks, and so they're hunting but they're hunting kind of in a cloistered way. You know, like I've met dudes that have. Like in a, like, just like they, tight knit. They're hunting group. on family land or they got okay. a deer camp down, you know. Okay. And, uh, you know, the, the timber companies down south, but it's just all like them and their cousin and their uncle and the guy they go to church with, you know what I mean? Uh, it's, it, it's, it's a reality that, uh, it's unfortunate, but it's it's something I feel like I can have I can have some positive impact on by just you know maybe maybe this guy he just needs to be introduced to it and I can say look here dude like you and me are coming from similar positions I'm telling you it's out there for us to get to I'm yeah. out there doing it uh, and that goes back to my idea about like the American dream uh, I pay my taxes I, you know I'm I deserve to be able to access anything that is publicly accessible. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not going to do anything foolhardy because I've got a wife and children I've got to go back to, but I'm not going to tell someone, I'm not going to allow someone to tell me that I can't go and hunt a piece of public ground just because they feel like someone like that looks like me shouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. You know? now, but now I've never had anyone say that to me. Right. I'm just saying like, or, or here's a perfect example. You know, like the first one of the first things I ever heard when I moved to Arkansas was there was a music festival up in Newton County, 
when I was at college, and uh, these folks were like, dude, you can't go up there. <laughs> They're like, the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan lives up there. <laughs> Which is was the case. I don't think I think he formerly held that position, but uh, but you know a lot of people are going to hear that, and they're not going to go they're, into they're that just, chunk of Arkansas. I see. I see. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's just like this. Yeah, it's almost like a. Well, I, I, yeah, like yeah, I, I, I see the barriers there. I, that t- people I told would a dude. Have. I told a dude one time. I said, "Let me ask you this." Imagine a very rural, kind of monolithic town in Arkansas. There's a million of them, 500 people or something yeah. like that. I said, uh, you know, this was a Caucasian guy. I was like, you want to go duck hunting, but you had, a, you had a roll into Compton at 4 o'clock in the morning by yourself. Like, you'd probably feel uncomfortable because you would very, it would be very easy to tell that you weren't from there. Yeah. Being an outsider is uncomfortable yeah. to human beings. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, like, it's uh, – and I'm not saying that just because you went to Compton you would be in danger or something like that. I'm just saying that it's – people want to be comfortable, and and I think that's the biggest barrier to getting non-traditional hunters into it is they've, right. they've got to – You know, regardless of race or color or anything, yes. being an outsider, being uncomfortable – yeah, that's that's a massive social challenge for yeah. anybody. Just coming from a very urban environment is enough of a challenge. When you start putting other stuff on it, so then you put being a woman on it, then you put being a woman yeah, of yeah, color yeah. on it. There's all these things, and it's not that people cannot overcome those things. It's just that human beings are really good at wallowing out a small, comfortable spot for themselves and yeah. then not wanting to, to expand past that. Man, just knowing you just for a few, well not knowing you real well that was something i mean you're you're really good at pushing outside of your comfort zone i mean just even coming up here to the squirrel co- squirrel cook off i mean just hey we're going to go compete in the squirrel cook off you brought your whole family up here yeah i mean anybody w- i mean that was, that would be intimidating to anybody really probably just uh, you're not afraid to do new stuff now, i mean i tell you what i think i'm probably the only one who did it solo Everyone else had teams. I did the yeah. whole thing solo, you know. But yeah. it's because in a an older guy that I'm friends with told me that. He's told me, he said very pointedly, he said, there's never been anything I couldn't do. It might take me a long time. And we were talking about hunting in the, the National Forest. He's like, there's never been anything. He's like, if you killed a 500-pound black bear back there, you could get it out. You might be dead dog tired, and it might be 4 in the morning before you're back at your truck. He's like, but you can get it out. Yeah. You just you have to have that mindset. That mentality. That if you, can you do want, it. if you want to live anything other than an ordinary life, if you want an easy ordinary life, you're going to do easy ordinary things, and you're going to have easy ordinary experiences. If you want more out of it, then you have to put more into it. And there's never been growth of any human being that didn't involve discomfort. Yeah, it's it's a necessary it's a necessary thing to grow. Yeah. It's like lifting weights. You have to be uncomfortable to push yourself past that level. But then you keep referencing what was before and you see how how far you've come. Yeah. And that gives you a little bit of fuel to try and go to that next step. Yeah. Well, right on, man. That's awesome. I I really like what you're doing in terms of uh and and again, it and it is it's not even just about African Americans. It's about it's about anybody that's not in this space easily. Yeah. 
coming into it, just overcoming the whatever difficulty it would be. Because you're you're absolutely right. I mean, it's like, man, it really is our right to be hunters in in this country anyway. I mean, it's it's you know the public land, the wildlife resource that's owned by the people, the the history of this country mm-hmm. in terms of providing wild game for our families in sustainable ways. I mean, it's just such a beautiful, awesome thing uh, to deprive people of that because of these, like what we've been talking about, is bizarre and and crazy. Yeah, and I think it also, I mean, I, this is stuff I love to wax poetic about because I'm real big into, like, ethos and pedagogy. So I don't know that second word. I learned it. I've been using it recently because I learned it from my wife about a month ago. But it <laughs> it, it just kind of, it's a more specific way to say ethos or your underlying ideals behind something. But uh, I'm big on being part of a, a human continuum. And like I was telling you yesterday about when I was scouting for bears and I was up on that limestone ridge. And I climbed up on that ridge because there was just something in me. And I would have felt that way if I was five years old that said, get up on top of that thing. That's the high thing. Climb up on top of that. And then I was looking out over all this national forest. And I thought about the fact a thousand years ago, some guy wearing buckskin did the same thing. I don't know who he was. I don't know when he did it, but I know somebody did it, you know, and someone did it a hundred years ago. It's the same thing with, uh, you know, uh, running trot lines or bow hunting deer or running a coon dog. You're, you're, you're immersing yourself in a human experience that's richer and bigger than you are. And mm-hmm. you'll, you'll contribute to it and then people after you that you don't know. You know, some guy 200 years ago that came over here from England and then was on the lamb in New York and ended up in Arkansas that was out in the woods would have no frame of reference for some weirdo like me that I'd be doing the same thing 200 years later. But, like, we're connected now. We're connected on a very human level. Like Uh, you're after the same things. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, it's I'm I'm, look, I'm real big on doing for yourself and self-reliance. But everybody needs help. I mean, everybody needs help. You know, your dad showed you how to hunt. You know, I'm sure you have bad days where you just, you know, tell your wife, oh, man, I'm having a horrible day. You know, like, And you can get recharged and helped along because of your wife or your family or whatever. No one's in this alone. So if I can, if I can help contribute to that continuum by even if just by an example of someone saying, hey, I've got something in common with that guy. Maybe I could try that. Uh, or let me holler at this guy and see if he would, if he would take me, a, let me tag along with him. Uh, that can do a lot. And, you know, on another, on a bigger, more noble note, too, what you start doing is you start building relationships with people that are, uh, that are different than you. Uh, and you start you start focusing more on similarities between people than differences. You know, like I can have different political beliefs from people. I can have different uh, goals in my life as far as professional. I can have different uh, ideas about how I want to raise my children. But I can connect with a person. Like if I see a guy that's real loving to his children, I feel like I've got a connection with him. Right. You know, if I see, like I told you yesterday, I heard you say something real complimentary about your wife on a, 
on a podcast one time. And I felt a connection with you because I respected it so much because it seems like a lot of guys feel like it's cool to, to speak derisively about their wives. Right. You know, like, and the mm-hmm. way I think about my wife, this is, a, this is a human being that I value above all others. And I stood up in front of everybody I know and told her that. Yeah. Uh, and so you start you start drawing connections with people like yeah, that. Yeah, you scored me some big bonus points by saying that to my wife. Yesterday. Hey, I'm glad, man. For Wait. real, she said when we got in the car, she said, "When did you say that I was brilliant?" And I said, "Oh, I say that all the time, man. And I do. That's but you know what? People <laughs> need to people do need to hear that. Like people that are important to you need to hear not just you saying, "Oh, I love you," but I mean, if you speak, if you're taking the time to speak highly about someone that you care about to other people, you really mean it. Man, there's a good old boy culture, and it's very alive in the South. Maybe it's alive everywhere, but where people, they, they, you know, all the old ball and chain, stay stuff like that. I never say stupid stuff like that. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I appreciate it that you recognize that. No, Yesterday when you said that, that, my wife actually said, he's a good guy. And I said, yeah. I said, I mean, you can tell a lot about a man by the way he treats his wife, by the way he talks about her, by the way he thinks about her. And because, mm-hmm. yeah, just what you said. I mean, if this person is the person that you have committed your life before God and family and that you have chosen to, you know, I mean, you better talk good about her. And and treat her <laughs> that way. And, and you know, this, this all does to me, it, it wraps itself up kind of in a tidy package because, like, you met my daughters today. Like, I have two little girls. Really, the way they're going to learn how they should be, how how they should expect to be treated by a partner is what they see from the way that me and their mother interact. Exactly. With. And so I've got to having those having my children really put in my head that I want them to have the best example possible so they can make good choices later in life. And the requirement for that is for me to be better than I am currently. You know, so yeah. I'm I'm really focused on trying. Like we're trying to build this business and trying to build this brand. It's difficult. It's very unsure a lot of the times. Uh, I am optimistic, and I feel like I'll be able to, you know, make a life for myself and my family. But even if I fail at it and I've got to go dig ditches, my girls are going to they're gonna get something out of seeing that they have a father who's willing to try and willing to fail and then get back up and keep going and not give up. And that... That works for business. That works for a relationship. That works for hunting. If you can take that kind of mindset into all these things, then a lot of these, this other these distractions that we were talking about, race, gender, political affiliation, all that stuff, those things are important, and they're, they're identifiers for humans. But I have found very few people that on an individual basis I can't find something in common with, and we can't develop some sort of rapport. It's yeah. always, the problems always occur when you get into bigger groups and people start consciously or unconsciously worrying about how they're perceived by others, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which, I mean, it's not like I'm immune to that, but, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, like with duck cutting, it's been a big thing. Like I was very cognizant of the fact that I stuck out. I was like this weird looking black guy that wasn't good at duck cutting. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the truth. I couldn't blow a duck call. I couldn't identify birds when they were flying for a long time. Uh, and I got better at it because I kept trying. And I kept immersing myself in it. And I'd hazard to say that I'm better at it than 
guys, some guys who have been doing it for 20 years. Now, not everybody, but I put a lot into it, yeah. too. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, I'd say that probably, aside from my children being born in the last couple of years, that uh, getting to the point where I could blow a duck call uh, competently, I felt like that was a real achievement. Because there was nothing in any of my experience that said I should be able to get to that point. Mm-hmm. And so I just picked the hardest way to do it, and it took me a real long time, but I finally did it. And it was mostly just driving. It, really, it was driving back and forth to Brinkley. It's an hour and 15 minutes each way. Blowing that alt call. Just blowing that alt all day long until finally <laughs> I trained. I trained. Your tongue is a muscle. I had to train that muscle to do some stuff it had never done before. Mm. Mm. Man, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Very good stuff. Wow. Well, it's a Black Duck Revival. People could come and rent your place down in Brinkley. Um, yeah, I'll point you. I'll try and point you in the right direction as far as public land. Like, I'm not going to necessarily give you all my holes, but I'll. I won't be stingy with it. If you want to talk about it, we sit down in front. I've got the hallway. When you walk in a Black Duck. You walk in, and there's, like, a long hallway, and then it opens up to a big great room. The kitchen and the living room are all together. But th- that hallway is lined with big Google Earth maps of all the public ground around there. Mm. And so I'll, if I'm working up there or I'm hunting or something and I meet the guys when they come in, we'll sit there for 30 minutes, and I'll say, look, you can put it at this boat ramp. Uh, Go here got, Check the that. water gauge. If the water gauge is at this, you can get back past here and then look around back there, and you ought to be able to find something. How long have you had black duck or the 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 lodge i opened it i think i was down to the wire so i think i opened it in october of last year really so it's only been open I've one had, season i've had one season and then i just opened up the how many the how many hunters could you hold in both camps so in in the old church uh you can do up to eight comfortably and in uh, the bungalow you can do five comfortably maybe we need to do and we sort of a little bit talked about this. Maybe we ought to do a like a youth duck hunt down there that we like, yeah. like, like said. Okay, there's ten spots. Me and my son come. Yeah, yeah. And say there's or how many spots would there be between both places? Eight and five, like thirteen. Sleep thirteen like, people. So, so say okay. There's thirteen spots. And we talked about youth season just because youth yeah. season in Arkansas is pretty good, mm-hmm. usually. Am I right? Well, you know, it's it's just a lot less competition. Yeah. Uh, and especially there's a later youth season after duck season's over. It's like the first week in February. Yeah. And then you've had ducks. Th- they're coming back after that, right? Well, no, you're still going to have ducks that are working their way south in the migration. It can be pretty good, though. Well, what it is is that you got all the yahoos out of the woods. Yeah. You know? And so, I mean, duck hunting, public, public duck hunting is – has a lot to do with the pressure. There's a lot more pressure now than there used to be. Like in the 80s, duck hunting in Arkansas is completely different in 2019 than it was in 85. Yeah. Like the the tornadoes of ducks that some of those guys could work in the 80s, I'll never see anything like it in my life. Yeah. There's I've seen videos in, you know, from when I was 4 years old, them pulling 500 mallards through the treetops. I've never in That ten- would be a mesmerizing experience. Oh, look, I'm chasing the times that I've seen 25 ducks do it. Yeah. that's It's like, you know, people, I'm not into golf, but people say, like, one good round will keep you going back. Like, I'm chasing the time I worked 25 ducks through the timber. Mm. And I'm telling you, 
you keep trying and trying and trying. You're bad at it. And then one day you convince 25 mallards to come down through those treetops. And they're like hitting branches on the way down. And and you're watching them and they'll splash down right in the deeks right in front of you. It doesn't matter if you shoot one. It's it's you did something. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's I'm telling you, man, it like wells you up with pride. I haven't cried doing it, but I could see it at some point. Just if I saw 500, I'd probably get a tear in my eye. <laughs> it's I mean, it really is. It's one of the most majestic things it. I've ever seen. I believe it. I really do. I, I get it. You know, I, I mean, I'm not a duck hunter. I know people are surprised when they hear them from Arkansas and don't duck hunt but i mean the mountains of arkansas we don't have any flyaway you know in over there well it's also complete it's a completely different culture like that guy Ora Lee that you interviewed like he grew up in a completely different culture yeah. now he might he might have grown up you know what we would consider poor and some guy in the delta grew up with very little uh very little money as well but the cultures are are very different yeah. uh but you know I, I think there's a lot of similarities in those things. Folks in the Delta, folks in the mountain, they have made they've made a living making a living. Like yeah. it takes a I heard a guy say one time about you know where Star City is? Yeah. He said, Man, it takes a big hammer to pound out a living in Star City. <laughs> yeah. You know? And it's th- that kind of idea. But that guy yeah. Or Lee, he said, Oh, we always had plenty to eat. Yeah. His expectations were different. His yeah. expectations about what work was was different. Uh there's, I think there's a lot of similarity in that. And I even told you that I think in a lot of ways, you know, the mountains of the west in Arkansas are kind of the inverse of the bottom land in the, uh, in the east. Yeah. It's, uh, they're, to me, they're both mesmerizing and, like, just a little bit, just spooky enough to keep it interesting. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe, uh, yeah, I I would my boys want a duck hunt, like for real. Man, dude, you guys we, are welcome. We've been invited on a couple of youth duck hunts the last couple of years, and we haven't done it. Just mm-hmm. you know, something just every time. But if we really had a reason to duck hunt, yeah. So maybe if maybe if we could formulate something and and uh, fill up your camp for a weekend, that'd be pretty good. Dude, we could do it, and I would I would say too. I'm I'm all about like early success for people trying, you know, fishing, like kid fishing or someone hunting, so it keeps them into it. But with that duck hunting, I'd love to get those kids in the timber. It's yeah. it's a completely foreign environment. Like you're you're standing on ground that the month before was totally dry land and squirrels and deer were running around it. And yeah. now it's become this weird conglomeration of places you know there's beavers oh it's through it. it's it's like being on a different planet to me it is i mean putting on waders and walking i'm like we're gonna walk out there i mean that's like yeah you know like we're looking at this i'm like in the mountains we don't go in mud holes like that yeah no you go in and look you have to you have to pay attention stuff can go wrong i mean you can mitigate a lot of that but you have to you have to pay attention you have to be safe uh but then you know a lot of stuff that you're into goes along with it the dog culture you know, yeah. the idea of having that partnership with an animal, something like my dog, Ammo, he's probably one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. You know, the experiences I've had with him. And I've always said this. I'd rather go and kill two ducks and have Ammo pick them up. than I would rather do that by myself. I duck come by myself most of the time. You know, uh, it can be a really fun group activity, but it's 
to me, it's so special that a lot of times I want to kind of keep it as a a reverent moment. Yeah. You know, it's 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 that special to me. And and it's that special to me whether or not I kill birds or not. Yeah. Uh cuz cuz and whenever I do have success with it, it's super special to me because like no one did that for me. No one handed me those birds. Yeah. You know, I I did that myself. And then my dog who's just I think is, you know, the best thing on four feet. He goes and gets it for me, and we hang out, and he falls asleep with his head on the headrest in the truck, you know, and go get a Life sausage biscuit. Man, it's, it is, it's the most, this stuff we're talking about, you know, hunting and fishing, the outdoors and family, those are the, those are the times when I'm most content. I feel like I'm kind of a frenetic person. Like, my mind goes a lot. I, I get socially anxious a lot. Uh. My wife says it to me all the time. Like every time we go to like a dinner party or something, I come back. Oh, did I talk too much? Did I, did I tick that person off? Whatever. <laughs> but you know, getting when I was scouting in the mountains the other day, uh, I realized. I said, "Man, I." I got back to the truck. I said, "Man, I haven't thought about anything other than where I was putting my feet and the trees and the land around me for five hours. I didn't think about a single thing, and it went like the, the blink of an eye. Yeah. And it's a uh, like I said, I think that's a very human that's a very human thing. I think that immersing yourself in these activities it helps you realize your humanity because I don't think that people did not evolve to spend all their time sitting in front of a computer and walking on paved grass. There's a feeling you get when you're a kid and you have like bare feet on the grass, you know, running around being sweaty, using your muscles, uh doing something that's hard and being successful at it, running, jumping, throwing. I think that you know, an atlatl is a natural extension of a human being thrown, and then a bow and arrow is the extension of that. I think that these are all very human experiences. And when I was up there on those limestone ridges, climbing around, pulling myself up, I was engaging, you know, my quads and my arms and stuff that I wouldn't be doing if I was sitting in an office. It, it makes me feel like I'm alive. It makes me feel like I'm part of the human continuum. Uh, and and that's why I want to help people that need a little push to get into it to do that because mm-hmm. that's it's 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 like it's the reason that people have children tell other people you should have children mm-hmm. you know like it's something that I had no I could not fathom what being a father was like until I was a father and I I could not fathom not being a father now you know yeah It'd be if something happened. It'd be the worst thing. If I was no longer a father, it'd be the worst thing to ever happen to me, you know. Because it's become so ingrained in who I am. It's changed my identity, and I think that, I think that really that most people, if they gave hunting, uh, if they gave hunting an, an honest effort, I think that it would fundamentally change most human beings and make them feel more rooted mm. in being a person. Yeah, that's good. You know, there's an Edward Abbey quote. I don't like Edward Abbey, uh, but he did have some, he had some good stuff. There was a quote that I've got it somewhere on my phone where it says for, it says for 10,000 years, humans were warriors and artists and poets and tamers of horses. Mm -hmm. That's what I liked. 
And he said, and then in just the last 150 years, we became clerks and accountants and, you know, had these jobs. And he said, basically the quote said, there's no way that you can extinguish that thing that we mm-hmm. were in this short a time. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that's what fuels me in a significant way is just what you've said is that the adventure that we experience as hunters on whatever scale, mm-hmm. if it's going out in your backyard and hunting deer, yeah, there is a level of adventure there that can be absolutely world-class, high-level human experience to go in your stinking backyard and bow hunt deer. Mm-hmm. The the ability to acquire game, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here, but your the ability to acquire the most healthy, the most rich rocket fuel, as Ted Nugent says, in yeah. the world for yourself is this extremely human experience that does, it kind of equalizes us in some way. I mean, and, and, it, and, it, and it does, it, it makes us human. And it seems like the further we get into time, the urban, the further we've got away from being human. I, yeah. mean, I mean, really, when you think about, it's not just technology, but it's culture and politics and all the like the complexities of life that we've never had to deal with are pulling us more and more into something that's really kind of unhuman. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and and there's something about and it's not and I've I said this I think even recently on a podcast is that to me there for hunting to make us something different to me it has to be connected to something bigger like it yeah. has and, and to me that bigger thing is 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 God I mean it's something bigger that. You know, and, and and I think that's a powerful component of it too. You know, you know, hunting just alone to me, you know, could just be something empty. But when it's connected to something bigger, then then to me that's when it makes sense. But this whole idea that that hunting is what makes us human is, uh, I think it's a powerful idea, and I think it's something that the the non-hunting urban community, not just urban. But just the non-hunting community really wouldn't understand. But their misunderstanding of it is some, is a product of a very short amount of time on in in the vast view of human history. I mean, just in the last fifty years, have people started mm-hmm. thinking that hunting was weird? Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? And uh, and then not that everybody hunted before that, but man, I, I think what we're what we're saying, what we're identifying with, and, and what we the reason we're here. Is because we recognize the incredible opportunity that we have access to. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's that's what we're talking about, is this incredible opportunity and access that we have at whatever level. I mean, I don't expect my kids to take hunting as serious as I do, uh, even though I would like for them to. Sure. I, I doubt they'll be able to make a living doing hunting-related stuff like I've done. Uh I don't even know if they'll take it. They may not need to take it as serious as I do. But if people if people that really should and really could at least have some level of deep respect for wildlife, wild places, and a human's ability to extract resource from that wild place in a sustainable way, if, you, if they just respected it just a little bit, we'd be way further along in, in trying to continue hunting as we've known it i mean so uh, in a practical sense like 
if my son Bear grows up and is just a squirrel hunter mm-hmm. and has a couple of squirrel dogs his whole life and takes his kids squirrel hunting, I'll be happy. If he grows up and he's like, Dad, I don't want a bear hunt like you do. You kind of took it. You know, I mean, that's cool. Um, because I don't want to paint the picture that everybody has to be as into it. I mean, you've like given your life to this thing the last yeah, few years. Yeah, sure. And I mean, and I did the same thing. I mean, my whole, a lot of my world revolves around hunting and, uh, not everybody can do that or should do that. But oh, no, I mean, look, but, I wouldn't want them to, Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't want, if everybody I knew was like me, then the places I go to would be crowded. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, practically, but I, I've, I thought of something when you were when you were just speaking before and I bring my wife up again because I, this really was a poignant moment in my life. It was maybe two or three years into me hunting until I had reached a level of competency, you know, where I I could go out, find deer sign, kill a deer, skin a deer, butcher it. I've never taken a deer to a processor, you know, uh, and I came home, and I'm a little four-cylinder Tacoma, and I just had a, a pretty decent doe in there. And my I had killed it and got home before my wife had even woken up. And I went and woke her up and said, hey, come outside and take a look at this. And she said, what? She comes mm-hmm. out, and she looked at it. And I remember she said, ooh, baby, just like this mm-hmm. kind of exclamation. And, you know, my wife is a very intelligent woman. She's, you know, a very progressive person, absolutely would identify as a strong feminist. But there was something... It wasn't. It wasn't like she's she's totally capable of going out and procuring a deer for herself. I think she was reacting to something that was very human. She just felt happy and pride, prideful, that her partner had accomplished something that was very, very base to uh, being a human. Like I had gone out and I had literally procured food for our family. Yeah. And she was just kind of reacting to that right off the bat, and I'm telling you, it's one it's one of my proudest moments. I still think about it mm. uh, because it. I felt. I think it made me, and we never talked about it really, but it made me feel recognized and appreciated and validated validated in a way that few things have because yeah. it was all it was all based around things that I. I had done for myself. Yeah. Like I had gotten that deer by myself. I convinced that woman that I was a good partner, you know, myself. I had waxed and waned in both of those cap- yeah. like capability levels with both those things. But it was a moment where it kind of all came together. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah. That's, like, a, that's a cool experience. And, and what I saw inside of it was, uh, you know, marriage and partnership with another human at the level of husband and wife mm-hmm. is like the most powerful entity in relationship ever. Oh, and, I'd, and, I'd and, say so. And, yeah, and in for a sure. functional way, even evolutionarily, you know, and I, I use that word, you know, just it 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 worked and it, it worked that way, you know, like complementing things, partnership. That is in essence what I saw inside it was just like partnership. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you brought it back to a point that I'm 100% in line with you about, about that partnership. I yeah, absolutely yeah. think that my partnership with my wife is it's the strongest. Uh, how, how would I say this? He's waving his hands in it's the air, the, folks. It's the place that I draw the most, most strength from in yeah. my life, you yeah. know, is that, that partnership we have. 
that, you know, we are building a life together. We are making a family. We are making a way in the world for ourselves. And we're figuring out what we think and how to impart those ideas to our children. I think yeah. that, that's incredibly powerful. That's awesome. Hey, tell us, uh, tell everybody where they can find you. Like, sure. uh, blackduckrevival.com. Yeah, man, I'm most, I'm probably most active on Instagram. So it's just black duck revival, uh, on Instagram. And I try, I've been a little funky with it, but I try and do like a recipe and a substantive article every week or two. Okay. Uh, and then you'll find that on my website, which is just blackduckrevival.com. You can also, if you go there, you can, uh, you can book a stay. You can, you know, feel free to send me an email. Ask me about what opportunities might be around. I'll shoot you straight. Yeah. Uh, Guys could come down there and go squirrel hunting. It's great. Some of the best squirrel hunting ever. That's what I want to do. Beautiful. There's water trails down there that are coon gorgeous hunting. for canoes. Coon hunting's a huge culture of coon hunting down there. And this year, I'm going to do a lot of, I mean, I've never done it before. I'm going to try my hand at a beaver trapping and try and kind of do double duty when I'm out there on the water, you know, set a trap line on my way out, come back in the morning, hunt ducks and then check my Good trap idea. on the way out. See, there's tons of, there's, there's tons of opportunity to do yeah. all sorts of stuff. Well, cool, man. That is really cool. Well, check out black duck revival and, uh, yeah, book a book, a couple of days of duck hunting or that's a cool part of the world down there. Hey, just, and just so you know, too, it's also a, the state record uh, whitetail was killed about 10 minutes away from Black Duck Revival. So it's got – the Arkansas Delta has the biggest deer in Arkansas, too, yeah, because does. of the ag land. So if you're a big deer hunter, there's plenty of public land opportunities for it you It really is. Well. There's some incredible whitetail hunting down there. Yeah. For sure. Incredible whitetail hunting. Well, did we forget anything? We're, no, man, I appreciate the opportunity, man. I've, yeah. Like I, said, I told you yesterday, man, I've been following your stuff for a, heavily for a couple of months, and – all the kind of stuff that we talked about today is why I've been so drawn to it because I think you bring, you bring that passion and that uh, that thoughtfulness uh, to it, and I I really appreciate it and identify with it. So thanks for the opportunity, man. Right. Well, my pleasure to have you on. Well, man, keep the wild places wild because that's where the ducks live. Yeah, and the bears and everything else. <laughs> You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.